Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. Today, I have as my guest, Becky Drennan. She is a fellow Baby Scoop Era adoptee who searched for and reunited with her birth families. Becky is a civilian employee at her local police department, and she loves her role as a wife, mom, and grandma. In her free time, you'll find her outdoors, writing, reading a good history book, or in Pilates class, which just looks like torture to me. She enjoys travel, camping, hiking, and spending time with family. And she is a co-facilitator for Adoption Network Cleveland's DNA Discovery Support Group. She's also written articles for two adoption anthologies, uh, Adoption in the Social Media Age, which we both know that the online platform is really changing things. And she also has an essay in the Adoptee Survival Guide, which is a great resource. She's also been a guest on the Adoptees On podcast. And if you have not had a chance uh, to listen to any of Haley Radke's podcasts, I highly encourage you to take a listen. So um, hi, Becky. Hi, Andy. It's good to talk with you. Good to talk with you too. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm glad to be here. I, I After our previous talk and reviewing the notes that I uh, wrote about you, I have just decided in my mind, I have dubbed you the queen of persistence. <laughs> I think we have to be as adoptees, right? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I thought... I thought my 22 year search for my information was, was a long time and yours was over 30 years. It was. I, that's a very, that's, that's longer than a lot of people have been alive. Right. It is. And I guess if I would have just been willing to take the little scraps of information I received the first time I requested it. It would have been a very short search, but that's not my nature to not dig deeper and deeper for as much information as possible. Well, and I think that your um, your experience is a really good, um, informative story of how persistence can pay off for us and why we shouldn't settle for a no. Right. So, so you were adopted in Ohio. Right. And did you grow up knowing that you were adopted? Yes. I don't even remember, you know, the talk about being told I was adopted. It was just part of my story as I, as I grew up. Did you feel safe uh, just, you know, asking questions or talking about what it was like being adopted? No, it was... Adoption was an open topic, but it was more of the, isn't this great that we adopted this wonderful girl? It wasn't, um, I did not feel comfortable talking about where I came from before I was part of the family I was raised with. I think that's a really common uh, thing for adoptees that we don't feel comfortable asking questions because even when I was an adult and found out that I was adopted I didn't feel comfortable asking questions so being a child that had to be really hard 
it, it, it was, and it's, it's that, I think it's, you create the stories yourself when you don't have the answers. And so, you know, I think kids tend to live in an imaginary world a lot anyhow. And I probably did so more than the average kid because I didn't have answers. So I made up stories about what I thought could be. So did there come a time when it really became uh, like a central issue for you or when you kind of decided I want to know, you know, where I came from and who my family was before my adoptive parents took me? For me, that started when my adoptive mom was pregnant with my younger sister. My parents went on to have two biological children after they adopted me. I was pretty young when my brother was born, but I was eight going on nine when my mom was pregnant with my sister. And watching her go through that pregnancy and then going to the hospital and coming home with the brand new little baby cemented in my mind how different my arrival into the family was and feeling that baby kick my mom and you know seeing her body change and seeing all of that happen really was a visual for me for how different it was to adopt a baby than to carry and give birth to a baby and that from that point on I I, it never left my mind. My my mother and where I came from really never left my my mind for very long. And did you feel like you could ask your your adoptive mom questions about how how your coming into the family was different than her having you know her pregnancies? No. Okay. I, comfortable. And, and I did approach the subject a number of different times. And the answer that I received was, you know, we really don't know anything. We don't, we don't know that much. I, at one point in time, I was probably close to being a teenager at that point in time. Um, mom told me, she said, the only thing I remember them telling us is that your mother had red hair. She you know, and I, and I don't think that it was really something that they were trying to hide from me. I just think that in the era wherein I was adopted, it was that as if born to mentality that it didn't matter where you came from. You know, they weren't thinking through what uh, the adopted person might think as they got a little bit older. They were just looking at it from the perspective of, okay, here's a baby. We'll place it in this family and they'll live happily ever after. It's amazing that they don't take into account that people grow up and that we have questions. I know for me, it as an adult, I thought back to how it must have been different when my adoptive mother then got pregnant and had another child after they adopted me and uh, and a baby boy after me I just mm-hmm. you know and it just can't help but wonder how we reacted to because you know my younger bro- my one younger brother just arrived and 
than the next one she was pregnant with. So, so you had that experience too of watching your mom go through a pregnancy. Yeah, but I was so little at the time. Like, uh, you know, I think she had three kids under three at one point. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I just remember not liking him. <laughs> I just I, I just remember taking him out of his bassinet thing and putting my like stuffed animals in it. <laughs> which and so i like the universal response to a little sibling <laughs> i think so i i used to have my own child care and i had a little boy who had a younger brother born and he used to come to my house and his mom would call me and say what is he saying to me and i'd say well what is he saying and she'd say mommy baby garby and i said you need to keep an eye on him because he wants to put the baby in the garbage <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I think, but I do wonder, you know, how, how that would have affected someone and you were old enough to watch that. Right. And to understand what was going on. So then how old were you when you went ahead and decided to apply for your actual documents? I was about 19, maybe going on 20. It was between 19 and 20. And I applied for my documents the very moment that I learned that it was a possibility because the ability to access records was also something that I had no idea about. This is you know way back before the internet age, this would have been in 1982. And I just didn't know and I had always grown up with the, the thought or the belief that the records are closed. You know, it's, it's information I'll never be able to have. I read an article in the Sunday paper that talked about a, a reunion and talked about the Ohio law, which at the time, back in that, at that point in time, the only people who had access to their original birth records were people who had been adopted and their adoption was finalized prior to January of 1964. My adoption was finalized in mid-December of 1963. So by a few weeks, I squeaked in and was able to request copies of my original birth certificate and my adoption decree from the state. And it was the very day uh, this was the Sunday paper, I think, when I read it. And on Monday, I called to find out what I needed to do. And I had two options. One was to send off my request with whatever money it required and wait for them to send it to me, or I could go over and see the records in person. And I made an appointment. Oh, I lost you. Where'd you go? I cannot hear you, Becky. I think you might've hit mute on your, or can you hear me and I can't hear you? Something happened here. I'm gonna pause for a second. Well, welcome back. We had a brief technology problem there. Uh, so thank you, Becky, for your patience. We just, we, We'd sure depend on technology these days, don't we? We absolutely do. Though I'm not sure how we all could have quite come through the pandemic without our online platforms. Absolutely. 
yeah, they've been kind of a sanity saver, I think, for a lot of people. They have. You were describing for me how at 19, 20, sometime in that range, you saw an, an article and that prompted you to apply for your adoption records. It did, yes. So it's, as I had said, it's something I did not know I could have. So uh, once I found out, I went the quickest route, which was going in person to the state capitol to uh, the vital statistics office to get a copy of my adoption record. And of course, I had no idea. I was really green with all of this stuff. I didn't, you know, I didn't, the, the communities that exist online today weren't there. I knew what was in that article and that was it. Um, so I was expecting like this great big file of all this information and what the rather disapproving lady brought to me when I arrived for my appointment to get my records was a copy of the adoption decree that changed my identity, um, and made me the legal, uh, child of my adoptive parents and then a copy of my original birth certificate, which interestingly was like a negative, was like a, a, it was white with black print. The, the amended birth certificate was black with white. So they were like polar, they were like negative images of each other. Um, and that's, that's all of the information that was there. She brought the file to me to allow me to look at it. And, you know, I'm trying to take in all of this information that's on there as quickly as I could. And what I remember is her asking me if I was done and I said, yes. And she started to take the file back. And then I'm like, is this not my copy? And she said, oh, you want a copy? <laughs> uh, yes, I want a copy. So I paid whatever cost they had to get copies and I left. Um, I left that vital statistics office with uh, way more information than even a week before I had even thought it would be possible for me to have. And how did that, how did it feel to hold that in your hands? It was exciting, but it almost held, felt like I was holding forbidden information. Like I really didn't have the right to that, which seems so ridiculous to me now because I've done that work and I understand how very much that identity that I had from birth until I was adopted is every much as bit, uh, every much mine as any other information that I have. But at that point in time, I think just that, that what you grow up with thinking that you don't, you know, that you should be grateful for the life you have and not think about the life or, you know, who you were before, very much permeated how I felt about those documents. It's funny how it, they can almost feel unreal, like they belong to someone else. Because it's a name you've never seen before. And I, I was fortunate that my mother had given me a name. And I looked at a lot of, you know, I just was trying to take it all in and it made my life before I was adopted feel more real. It actually made it feel like I was, you know, I had been given birth to, I didn't just 
land <laughs> in my adoptive parents' arms. And then did that kind of spur a, a curiosity on your part to find out more about that period of time between when you were born and when you were um, adopted? At that point, my focus was on finding my birth mother, because of course, this probably is the case with the majority of original birth records, there was no father listed, but I had a name, I had an age, and I had an address where she was living 20 years prior when I was born. And so that, that was my focus more than, um, more than that gap in between times. So I did, I started reading the few books that were in my small town library and I, you know, kind of figured out what I could do. And the first thing I did was write to the agency for information about, you know, my non-identifying information, which I understood that I had a right to. So I, I got that information and wrote, and I got back just a few short paragraphs that were just basic demographic basic physical characteristic information, not very much information at all. It was about a half of the typewritten page. And that's what people refer to as non-identifying information, correct? Correct. Okay. And that... yes, and, and that's something that every adopted person should have a right to, but there's a huge variation I've learned in what different agencies keep and if it's a private adoption versus a you know one through a social services agency or a or a church organization there's just a lot of variation in what's kept i really was surprised when i read through the ohio laws and there's a section and i'm sure you're very familiar with this but i was just shocked that there's a section that talks about how the copies of your original birth certificate and other documents in the legal registrar or probate court where the um, adoption is registered, like where you're born, they destroy mm -hmm. all of the copies of those. And it goes to the state. Yeah. And so it only, it just depends on what the state and your adoption agency, like you said, what they consider important to retain. Yes. The, the original birth record and the adoption decree, that's what goes to the state. And the the you know the biographical information and you know any information prior um, to that is retained by the agency. So if your agency closes or if your agency chooses to not maintain those files you potentially could find that you have no records other than your amended birth certificate and your original. And I know that I know of adoptees who have not been able to get very much of any information because they don't know where they are located. However, they the agencies are required if they close or cease doing business, they are required to to find somebody to house those records. So they should exist oh, somewhere. Okay. So uh, in, in the case of the agency that handled my adoption, they no longer do adoptions, but they still do like some counseling services and things like that. And 
they have an administrative person who still has access to the records and will process requests for non-identifying information. But there are the places that have burned down and records that can't be found. And I cannot imagine how frustrating that would be to you know, request this information and come back with absolutely nothing. You, that would, that's gotta be devastating. And I know that there are a number of people adopted from other countries, especially where the record keeping uh, guidelines are not, well, that some places they're non-existent. Right, or someone who was dropped off on a doorstep or something like that, where there, where there just isn't anything. I, I just, I can't, I can't even fathom how that would feel. I, yeah, I can't either. It, I would have to just be heartbreaking. So, I, and you actually, your records, you had to deal with two different agencies, correct? So at the time I was placed with my parents I, I was about they lived about three hours away from where I was born and there was another Lutheran social services that was closer so what they ended up doing is all of the rest after I was placed all of the rest of the contacts the home visits and and everything else um, ended up being handled by that other agency so I did end up over time, I learned that I had, there was information about me in both, at both agencies. So now you said that when you went to apply the first time that the clerk was not very approving, not very helpful. Did you have a better experience with the people at the agencies? So I never talked with anyone at the agencies back in the 80s. What I, and the the only I didn't really understand that I there would be records in the other agency closer to where my parents lived at that point in time. So what I did was about a year or so later, I just I was starting my search for my birth mother, and it was a slow process before the internet. There was no Put the name in Facebook and see what pops up. But it was, it, you know, it was all very uh, tedious, you know, searching, trying to look through, you know, phone books, trying to guess where she went, looking for other records that would give me some ideas of where she went and, uh, you know, where she would be now, what her married name would be, and those types of things. But I still had all of these additional questions. It's like you didn't tell me anything about them. You told me, you know, what you know, a basic description and age and ethnicity, and that was it. So I went back and wrote a letter, a pretty lengthy letter, um, basically pleading for additional information. So that would have been about a year afterwards. And I got back probably about a two-page typewritten letter then that, um, you know, she started out saying, you know, let me attempt to answer some of the questions you've asked. And most of the answers were, we really don't know, but here's what we do know. And I learned more at that point in time that talked about how my parents met, um, you know, according to the record and, and, you know, those types of things. But most of the questions I asked, they really didn't have an answer for. They didn't have any additional health information. They didn't even um, know whether or not my mother had held me or 
uh, or anything um, like that at the time, or if they did know it, they weren't, they didn't disclose it in this letter that they wrote. Well, it sounds like it must have been really frustrating that you're going and asking for information and each time they give you a little bit more instead of- It is because, because at that point, the thought process started to be more like, what else do you know that you're not telling me? Yeah. And, and it also though, giving a little bit more information made my parents seem more real to me than just being, you know, a basic physical description. You know, it, it was, you know, it, it, it gave me more context. And uh, so probably made me even more curious and then uh, that would have been in 1982 when I got that information. And it took me until 1984 before I was actually able to locate my current contact information for my birth mother. So you told me a little bit about all of the different kinds of documents and things that you relied on to try and find your um, mother and your father would you mind just kind of describing some of those different uh, documents and processes that you went through? Because I think a lot of people today don't really understand like what people went through before the internet, yes. before DNA. Yes. So what I did is at that point in time, uh, I called information for different, you know, for the area where my mother was born and asked, you know, for people with that name, thinking maybe I could find her parents. Uh, I called libraries to ask them to do searches of city directories and that type of thing. And that came up with a big nothing. And I knew what I really needed to find was her married name. And I did some talking with a paralegal who came into uh the place I worked at that point in time. And she had mentioned to me that you could do like 10 year searches in Ohio of vital records, birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, and that type of thing. So by using that process, I was able to get um, a date of death for my grandfather. I was able to get my mother's marriage information. I was able to get I got her birth certificate, so I had her parents' names. I got, I mean, these were all uncertified copies, um, of course. And then I got my, um, her oldest kept child's, you know, my brother's uh, birth certificate, which, you know, and, and it was as simple as sending a check for, I think it was maybe $10 at the time and saying, please do a record search for, you know, a child born to this person and this person between this year and this year over a 10 year span. And then if, if they were able to find something, they would send you a copy of that record. I don't even know if that process still exists today, but back in the eighties it did. Uh, so all of that information together, um, you know, gave me a lot more to go on, um, but I still didn't have a current address or, a, you know, contact information. And then uh, when I found that, um, the way I found it probably wasn't the right way, but I had a friend who had a friend who was a police officer in another jurisdiction. And um, 
said, well, just let me ask and see. And I ended up um, getting that, uh, her current address off of, you know, from uh, someone who had searched records. And I don't know what the laws were then. I know that would be very much against the law right now, but you know, this was in 1984. So yes, a few years ago, it was a few years ago. Isn't it crazy making though, that you could obtain copies of your mother's and your brother's birth certificates, but until you were 18 or 19, you couldn't get a copy of your own. That thought crosses my mind when I look at all of those documents it's it's crazy I can get records for a complete stranger but I couldn't get my original you know many people I could just because of the way the law was written but most adoptees still cannot get a copy of their original record and that's not right no I I'm amazed that I was able to get a copy of my mother's birth certificate and it was two dollars and a stamp mm-hmm and it cost me hundreds of dollars and years to get my own. So it's, and you basically, you became a detective. You have to be. I think most adoptees who want information, I think that's what we all do. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And it shouldn't have to be that way. We should have a file with that information. Yeah, I think from from the beginning, it should just be something that is taken for granted, or, you know, maybe just not change our names and everything to begin with. But that's, that's a bit that's a big stretch. Let's do some baby steps first. Let's get to the point where everybody has access to their information. And then let's start working on yeah. on uh, on, you know, different ways of doing things where other people can, um, you know, where adoption looks very different than what it does today yeah hopefully that's what will happen in the future and I think that's the value of all of us talking about our experiences because if you're not adopted you don't understand no people don't and that's because they have the they have the privilege of knowing all along and being able to make decisions for themselves about yes yeah whereas we're kind of infantilized we are because we're still called adopted children even when we're 50 some years old I know and doesn't it just drive you nuts that we're you know we have the baby scoop era adoptees and so many of us are just now learning how to access our identities or advocating for us to be able to receive them Uh, it just just feels like, I don't know, for me, I'm at that age where I don't have anybody that I need to worry about offending anymore. So maybe that's part of why so many of us are in our, you know, late 40s or older when we start being outspoken or when we start uh, really looking for the information because we're not worried about upsetting our, our adoptive parents or... Right. And many, many people I've spoken with who have searched have waited until their adoptive parents were no longer living. 
yeah to 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 initiate a search just out of that sense of loyalty or guilt or whatever um whatever drives that and were you but what i think about is when when people talk about that is as well if their adoptive parents are deceased there's probably a good chance that they they might find a grave when they search for their birth parents too Abs yeah absolutely that's too many of our experiences mm -hmm. so now when you went ahead and applied for your documents and you started this process were you able to be open about the fact that you were pursuing your information nope i did not i didn't tell my adoptive parents about my search until well after i had found and made contact with my birth mother it was probably a few years afterwards and there was a question asked that gave me the opening to bring it up so i didn't bring it up it was kind of like an opening in a conversation when we were with dinner when we were at dinner together and i just was like well here we go and i then uh, said well here's what i found and and honestly i think it was easier because when i reached out to my birth mother uh, she was raising teenagers had never told her she did what her parents and the adoption agency told her to do and that was don't mention this to anybody nobody will ever you know want to marry you if you they knew you've already had a baby and you know just go on with your life and forget about it she did not speak to anyone about me uh, about having a child before she married her husband and she couldn't fathom you know it, it, it was just not something that she could even fathom telling about and she she was very upset when i contacted her so what that did then is shut me down for a lot of years uh, after that because i you know as much as i wanted to see her i couldn't even imagine that she would not be curious about hello again hello your internet dropped huh <laughs> I am beginning to get <laughs> I am beginning ah, to get rather okay. frustrated with my computer. I am so sorry. So you were, it is what it is. Uh, so you're telling me about this emotional experience of your mother not wanting to speak with you and my computer drops. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> So Thank let's you. see if we can backtrack to where we were here. Mm -hmm. And I think what I had, <laughs> do you know where, where, what I was talking about? When you were saying that you could not imagine your mother not wanting to know about you. Yes, because I had not, I hadn't done a lot of the reading. I had not ever spoken with someone who had given a baby up for adoption. I didn't know that many adopted people and it wasn't really something that we talked about you know, I didn't know anybody that had searched. And so I didn't have any frame of reference, but I just couldn't imagine that she would not be as interested to hear from me. I, I, I didn't even really stop to think, you know, at my age at what, 22 or so at the time, I, I, it just never even crossed my mind that she wouldn't be happy to hear from me. So that rejection absolutely crushed me. And I just, you know, I just basically bottled it up. And I, you know, at that point, I just figured that was that. I 
at that point, I felt that she had the right to make that decision for both of us. So, yeah, that, I mean, that really hurts. And if your only real exposure to reunion had been the article that informed you that you could even ask for your documents. So, you know, I think we're exposed to all these happy reunion stories. And so we expect that that's gonna be our result. And yes, yeah, it just seems unfathomable that the person who loved us so much they gave us away would not want to talk to us and find out what our lives have been like. Right. And especially at that point in time, I was a mother as well. I had given birth to a child, I had carried a child. And, you know, that gives you an even more intimate experience with what it is to, you know, carry a baby and hold that baby in your arms. And I, again, couldn't even imagine what it would be like to hand that baby over to strangers and never even know if that baby was okay or how she was or anything like that. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, so you're a young mom and I am, yes. And you haven't, and you've, you know, you've gone through this experience of, you know, dealing with the disapproval of the person at the first place you went to, and then doing this detective work to find your mother. And you've done all this without talking or feeling safe talking to your adoptive family. Right. I really, I talked, I had one friend that I talked with about it some, and that was it. But this was, was this an adopted friend or a non-adopted friend? No, it was not an adopted. It was, it was a coworker and friend. I, but she was not adopted. She had no, she had no connection with adoption. So I feel like it sounds like she tried to be supportive, but we know how hard it is for non-adopted people to kind of really get what it's like. Yes. And so she was, and, and she was a sounding board and really felt strongly that I was doing the right thing. Uh, so, but she wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we had a discussion about, well, what if she isn't happy to hear from you? <laughs> there was none of that conversation. Yeah. I, I think that the, um, online support groups and the books and the podcasts and things that are available now it would have been so nice if those things had been available years ago yes and I think there were support groups in the bigger cities Alma um, Cub uh, Concerned United Birth Parents has been around for a long time a lot of that stuff has been there but you know in my little midwestern town that I grew up in I wasn't aware of anything so so yeah I was I was going alone and it was probably close to the 20 2009 2010 somewhere around there before I connected with other people who shared my experience online there were you know different types of groups that I connected with at that point in time that 
really got me uh, to thinking about my experience and thinking about and realizing that this was an experience that many other adoptive people shared with me. There was not something wrong with me for wanting to know where I came from and who I came from and what those people were like now. And that was so affirming to me. Uh, and it, you know, it, all of that stuff that had been bottled up that I, I felt like I didn't have any right to be upset about, but yet my heart and my body were very upset for, uh, about that rejection, um, you know, for many, many, many years. Uh, finally started to get, you know, some of that, some of that grief started to get processed once I connected with uh, different groups online. And then, you know, but even at that point, you know, I hadn't ever really been that it was online. I'd really never sat in a room with other adopted people. I had not talked with birth parents. Um, you know, it was still, I, I knew a couple of people by that point in time who um, I knew had placed babies for adoption, but I had never talked with them about their experience. So how did that, do you feel like it affected how you interacted with people, you know, when you, they had placed babies for adoption, but you didn't talk with them about your own experiences? I'm not saying that very well. You know, no, I, I think I know what you're saying. It's like, did I, you know, did I think about talking with them and did I have questions for them and that type of thing? And I think, you know, before I really got involved with that community, uh, with the adoption community online, I was still in that place where I, I felt like it was um, kind of a taboo topic to, you know, bring up with somebody I didn't know very, very well. So. I, I really didn't uh, think that I, that it was appropriate. And plus, I think from my experience, I felt like it had to be a very painful thing from my experience as being a mom. And I didn't want to bring something up with somebody that might be a painful topic. Yeah, I can understand that. It, it's hard to know what to say I've I've just asked because I've talked to some other adoptees who it brings up a lot for them you know that they'll hear someone say that they've given up their child or that they're going to and it triggers a lot for them and and you know it brings up a lot of their grief and their sadness that they feel yeah, and now, one experience I remember, and I don't even remember what year it was, but with the a group of other women at church, I went to, it was called Women of Faith Conferences, and it was like these big arenas, like, you know, like a basketball arena that are full of women for a weekend, and they bring in Christian motivational speakers, and I, there were probably about 12 people or so from our church there, and, you know, I had no idea I mean, I didn't know what to expect. It was like, it was a, a weekend away. That That's what it was for me. But there was a speaker, her name was Marilyn Meberg, and she got up and she started talking about her uh, daughter. And she had, you know, to make a really, you know, a long 
you know, talk short, she had adopted her daughter. And as she got older, became, you know, understood that she had a lot of questions about where she came from. And she talked about taking her daughter to the place where she was born and the physical, her, you know, the hospital where she was at uh, when she was born and the physical reaction that her daughter had to it. And she talked about, you know, meeting her daughter's birth parents and that type of thing, her birth mother. And I can remember sobbing and crying and crying. I can remember one of the women I knew who knew I was adopted because she worked with my dad for a lot of years. I can remember her just, she was sitting kind of back from me and I can remember her just putting her hand on my shoulder. And I, you know, I think she, she understood some, but still at that point, you know, we all went back to our hotel rooms and I didn't talk about it anymore. And, and it, you know, I, so, so it was there, I guess what I'm saying with all of that is all of that, that grief and those, that painful, um, you know, that am I enough, all those things that, that not, um, that that rejection brought up for me was all underneath the surface, uh, but I didn't allow it out. And when it did come out, I tried to shove it back down as quick as I could until, you know, I really started connecting and realized that it wasn't just me. Yeah, I think the phenomenon of adoptee silence is, is so real and so misunderstood that because we don't talk about it, that somehow we're not affected. Right. Yeah. And I, I would say, I would even go as far as to say that not talking about it um, is even, uh, it's much worse in my experience than it, it's much harder to accept and process when you don't talk about it than when you're able to have those conversations out loud with other people out louder in writing. Yeah, I think it, I think the silence is more a sign of just how deep the trauma is and how big the questions are and and that we haven't been equipped with the language or the permission to be able to talk about it. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, so it was a while before you were able to feel motivated to continue searching for family. Cause I know you had told me that you used your non-identifying information then to track down your father. I did. And, and also in that interim time, as I started feeling more empowered and more uh, understood better my reasons and and the fact that I did have a right to information about where I came from and who I came from. I reached out to my birth mother again in 2011. And boy, I got to tell you, that was a really, uh, I can remember picking up the phone, dialing, and that's when you still had phones, not cell phones, where you, where you, at least I was using a phone, a landline, where yeah. I pushed, I would push the little button down where, you, where the receiver goes, so that it wouldn't, the call wouldn't complete, because I would almost, you know, I'd be almost hyperventilating, and it took me a while to, to, to because I, I you know, I didn't want to be screamed at again, 
I didn't want that rejection again. It was hard. And I guess screamed at us a little bit. I mean, she was in a panic when, um, you know, the first time I heard her voice. And, and um, so I'm not saying that as a negative thing. It's just, you know, I didn't want that rejection again. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't go through my life not trying again. So I called her and this time um, I ended up, I mean, she was rather shocked to hear from me, but I did end up having about a 90 minute conversation with her that answered a lot of my questions. We talked a little bit about my father um, as well, actually quite a bit about him. And though she did not give me his name, um, she'd mentioned, and I was taking notes the entire time we were talking, she, she did give me um, you know, there, she was visiting relatives when they met and she, you know, told me that it was her dad's sister that she was, was visiting. And so that was, so, you know, I had those bits of information and I had all these notes. I had what the adoption agency had sent me and I had the conversation that I had with her, um, but I didn't think, I, I thought there was absolutely no way I could figure out who he was. And that's when DNA started coming into play. And I talked with some of my connections in the adoption community. And, you know, I, I knew it would, would be a long shot um, or it wouldn't, you know, it's not like today where you, a lot of people who are, have grown up in the U.S. and their families have been here for a while will get pretty close matches pretty quick. At that time, it was pretty new. And you know, I spoke with someone who helped, who was a search angel for people who did DNA testing. And one of the things she suggested was that I start to build out my birth mother's family tree on ancestry so that I could isolate maternal matches from possible paternal ones since my father's who I was trying to find. And so I started doing that and I had all of the information I had, all the notes and different things that I, that I had accumulated in the searching that I had done and what I had. And, you know, I started thinking, you know, I, I have location I've got, you know, and I knew from my non-ID that my father was a farmer and farmers don't move around a lot. You know, if it had been a military family, it would have been a whole different story. So I started using, you know, basic genealogy tools. I looked for, um, I looked at census records to find my, um, the, you know, the aunt that she would have gone to visit. And, and those census records had been released. So I was able to, you know, from when my uh, grandparents and their siblings would have been young. So I was able to, to get that information. I had her name. I looked, you know, I found, you know, on Ancestry by that point, there was quite a bit available I found. And I ended up finding her obituary. So I was able to, to place it to a town in Illinois. And so I started just doing things like looking at land records. I mean, I was kind of, you know, just taking, you know, at that point I was starting to think, well, maybe there's a chance here. And what ended up opening things up for me was I, when I was searching for my aunt's family in uh, this area, I did a, like a newspaper paper index search and went back and forth with the library a little bit. And then they would send you the articles, uh, copies of the articles 
they they weren't the article wasn't online just the index so when i i had i don't know five or six different articles that had mentions of my family one of them was a was a marriage marriage announcement for uh, my aunt's daughter and so i had requested that that marriage fit with the timing when my birth parents would have met and when i got that actual record my birth mother was a bridesmaid in the wedding and so you know my wheels were turning about where better to start a romance than in um you know at a wedding and so i started researching all of the people in the bridal party and uh to make a long story short the uh the best man was my birth father and i was able to get that confirmed when i spoke with the bride i called her and she was a little uh surprised of course to get this call out of the blue but she was very helpful and and actually probably within about five minutes after we got off the phone i had uh she had scanned and sent me a copy of uh the um her wedding picture that had both my parents in it oh so that was your was that your first photo of your of your mother and your father no i had actually uh back when um when i reached out to my mother in the 80s she did end up taking my phone number and her she gave that phone number to her sister my aunt who called me and she you know when i look back on it she did not stay in contact for very long but she did send me some pictures when i look back on it really the reason that she contacted me wasn't because she was interested in a relationship with me it was to elicit a promise from me that i would not contact my mother and ruin her life oh that's so hurtful so 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 i had had some pictures before that uh but seeing both of my parents in the same picture together it was um it was the first and it wasn't even because there were pictures of my father that were available on the internet that i had seen so i had but that was but that seeing that picture of them in the time frame of when um i would have been conceived you know within you know that same era that was i can i can remember just sitting and staring at it i was it was just overwhelming and at that point though i felt like that was information i deserved i no longer felt like i was looking at you know something that was forbidden well good i'm glad that you had arrived at that point and i'm so glad <laughs> right. you got to see them together you know in a wedding picture just not theirs yeah well it's probably the closest to, that a lot of people get to seeing their parents in the same right picture yeah but that had to be yes. i'm just i'm just kind of without words i'm just thinking about what that would feel like and just you know when i first started doing this i thought okay adoption records adoption files we'll talk about these documents but the more i talk to people the more i realize that it it extends beyond our adoption decree and our you know maybe the social workers notes to photographs because how many of us have photographs from when we were born 
Right. Yeah. And how many of us have photographs of, of any family related to us? That whole idea of genetic mirroring that you take for granted when you grow up in biological family. But even if you're similar coloring, similar build, all those types of things, you can see the difference. And it's, it's a very odd thing to go through life and never look, you know, until you have a child of your own to never see, you know, siblings or parents that are biologically related to you. So yes, it's, it's, um, it's validating. It's more of that sense of, I really do exist, which sounds really dumb, but it's a, it's a thought. It really is. It's like, this is, it's, this is proof that <laughs> I wasn't just placed in my parents' arms. I, I had an identity before. Oh, I, t I totally get it. Cause I think that we, I think there's plenty of research out there that supports the the fact, in my opinion, that we form our sense of identity through uh, seeing ourselves in the people around us and in our in the culture around us. And when that's lacking, we have no reflection. It's, you know, I kind of jokingly say that I've been a vampire for most of my life because I don't have a reflection. Mm. But it, it's hard to form a sense of identity when you don't see yourself and, and to feel real. It's, it's like you take on the identities of others and you just don't feel real. like you've got your own. Yeah, real. Yes. Yeah. Your, you your fiction instead of your fiction instead of, you know well-researched history yeah. book right <laughs> yeah and when your documents support the idea that you're a fiction it I think it reinforces it so when we hold our documents in our hands or when we see them like you said it makes us more real to ourselves and then when we get the descriptions of our parents and our grandparents and our families they start to become real and I think it changes how we feel about ourselves. I, I think it does too. And it's like this layer after layer after layer, you, you know, it's like a, this painting that you start with, you know, just this little bit of a sketch and the more information you learn, the more layers you have and the more real it looks. Yeah. And it, and it becomes something that you can integrate into your you know perspective of yourself and your family and and it's something we can give our kids too if we choose to have children is this absolutely of, yeah of who they are and where they fit in and yeah it's and so it's fun because you found your father and then you met your dad didn't you I did I went against all of the advice that is out there and I I had made a phone call to him and it didn't I didn't feel like he was hearing me I I I felt like he was either trying to blow me off or he was hard of hearing I wasn't sure and 
I was able to determine that he um, he was he organized a farm show um, in the community where he lived, and you know I had been kind of looking up information about him online before I met him. I'd been able to find pictures. I was able even able to hear his voice because I was able to find an interview that he did on the local radio station uh, that had been published that came up in an internet search. So, you know, I even had a sense of what his voice sounded like. And so, um, but I was able by searching on the internet to determine that he was, that this show that he organized was going to be going on. And I had a little bit of time off work then and the place we were going to go camping. So this is how quickly this came up. The place that we were going to go camping, the weather was going to be really bad. So I looked at that and I mentioned it to my husband. I'm like, you know what? I'll bet we might be able to see him over there, find him. Um, Cause you know, if he organizes the show, he's going to be around over the weekend. And my husband was all for it. So we, headed that way um found a place to camp and went to that show and I had spotted him within about 15 minutes of the time that we arrived on the showgrounds and it took a while um he it the, this antique farm show they have a tractor parade where all of these old tractors go by and he and another gentleman were uh talking about each of those tractors as, as they went by. And so I waited until after that was over with, and then I went up and, and uh, started talking with him and, you know, established a little bit of, uh, you know, where we were talking back and forth and ended up telling him um, who I was and why I thought he was my father. And um, it was obviously quite a shock to him that he was open to listening to me talk. And uh, we ended up having a really good relationship for about three years. So he passed away a little over three years after we first met. So there again, you go back to that timing. If I had fiddled around and waited, I would have never had that opportunity to meet him. And he's the kind of person that somebody could describe you him to you all day long. And he's really the kind of person you have to meet in person to really understand who he is and what he's about. I'm so glad you had that opportunity. Oh, I am too. I'm sorry that he's gone and that had to be hard. But I'm I'm glad you got it to was. Yeah. So and that's such a different experience from what you had with your mother. Yes. And and really when when I think a lot about that. I think that was the first time I felt totally accepted by a birth family member. And that was a, a, a beautiful gift that he gave me. Yeah. Yeah. I wish everybody was able to experience that. I'm so glad that you did. And I'm so glad that, cause I, did your kids get to meet their grandfather? Um, my, my daughter and uh, my Yes, my daughter and all of her children have the opportunity to meet him. Yes. Okay, so you have one daughter and you have many grandchildren. Well, I have I have a daughter and I have three stepchildren, and they didn't have the chance to meet him, but 
that my daughter and and her children did yes okay so they got to see where mom got it from huh yes (laughs) yep they did and so that was you know that that was was huge but what that also did is once again the more information I had the more I knew about where I came from I it it shone a spotlight on the things I still didn't know and that's after I met him, that's when I really started honing in on, wait a minute, there's three months that I know absolutely nothing about my life. Where was I? What, what can I learn about that? And at that point, I had connected with Adoption Network Cleveland, and I, I knew a little bit more about what from the, the work that uh, I did a little bit of volunteer work when the, the Ohio law uh, was changing, you know, to get that through the General Assembly in Ohio. And so then I started really digging into what else I could learn about those three months. And that, you know, I go back to the adoption agency again, because they're the ones that have that information. And I knew from my experience back when I was younger, that just what they sent me at first wasn't all they had. They did give up a little bit more information the second time I wrote. So I went back to them again to uh, see if I could get some additional information about me. I was very clear with them that I had found both birth parents. I didn't need that information. This isn't what I was looking for. I was looking for what all they had about me and where I was and who I was with for the first three months of my life. Yeah, because you had a right to that information as well. Absolutely. And, you know, my father asked me a lot of questions about that. And when I spoke with my mother in 2011, too, one of the things I remember about that is she was very surprised that I was not placed with my adoptive parents for three months. I think she... I don't know that it was a question she asked, but I think she had it in her head that I would have gone straight from the hospital to an adoptive family. They, they didn't even have that conversation with her. Yeah, my, uh, the one conversation that I had with my grandmother, my mom's mom, they thought I had gone home immediately with my adoptive family. They had no idea that a couple of weeks went by before the hospital released me. Was that upsetting to them? I, I think so, but they didn't really want to talk about anything. The, the conversation was pretty brief and pretty abrupt because they had been led to believe one thing. And then when I told them it wasn't what they had thought it was, they really didn't want to hear anymore after that. Yeah. Yeah, that had to be a shock to him, I would guess. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think that it brought up a bunch of stuff that I didn't understand at the time. Apparently, there had been an agreement between my two sets of grandparents that my father's parents would take me. And then my mother apparently told my father that she was opting to have an abortion and so her parents still thought that his parents took me they didn't know that she had told him that 
So, so yeah. So when they found out that I didn't go home immediately with my father's parents and they didn't understand why I had been placed with strangers, I guess it caused a lot of uproar with my mother. And oh, wow. Yeah. And so and it was always so much emotion with this stuff and the stories are never easy are they no and and so my father and my grandparents passed away without no without knowing that I existed because I didn't find Mm. them yeah so that Mm. was hard that was really hard to learn that my grandparents would have wanted to raise me but you know can't go back and do it over again nope where we're dealt the cards were dealt yeah but I do wonder about that too. And, and I don't yeah yeah but you, you had you, three months yes and I've done a lot of research to understand that was pretty common at the time they wanted to make sure they weren't passing on a sick baby yeah I think that was the biggest thing you know here I grew up you know the stories you tell yourself I grew up kind of in the back of my mind I think I thought why did she keep me for three months and then give me up was I that bad of a baby (laughs) or what I'm sorry you know that's you know that's that's the kind of things that run through your head and you know once you learn a little bit more and you understand that it wasn't okay you know in society to be an unwed parent and there were none of the social supports that we have now and all of those things you know, I understand it, but as a, as a kid, I didn't. And so that was, you know, that was one of the stories that went through my head. And so, you know, I think, but before I could really, I mean, it's kind of this layered thing. And I, I had, I knew more about my mother. I had not met her yet. Um, I had met my father. I knew, I mean, he was kind of the keeper of the family history stuff and, he gave me so much information. I have pictures of a lot of ancestors on that side and a lot of the stories and that type of thing. Uh, so, and, and actually through meeting my birth fathers, uh, through my cousin who lived in the same town as my birth father, I connected with an uncle and aunt of my birth mothers and was able to get a lot of that history information uh, from them too. So, you know, I'm starting to build this more, uh, robust picture of who and where I came from and I think that shone that light even more on those three months that I do nothing about and so you know that agency you know when I first went to them I thought well I'll explain what I want and they'll you know they'll send me what I want now the Ohio law has changed there's all these you know surely they're not going to be difficult about that but um you know, I was very clear in what I wanted and um, what I received in exchange for my request and my check for $100 was uh, basically the same thing that they had sent me before and zero of the information about me <laughs> that I had asked for. And uh, I called back to ask and was told by the gatekeeper who was not a very nice person at all um that that's all there was in my file and you know she was you know because I was asking questions I'm like it says I'm baptized there's nothing else in there about that 
And, um, you know, somebody had me for three months. There's nothing in your file about that. And, you know, she, I can some of the things I, I have a list of some of the really rude things she said to me, I have them in quotes, but one of the things that sticks out is she's like, well, you know, if you're concerned about your pap- baptism, why don't you go talk to your pastor and have him baptize you again? So completely missing the point. She was an administrative person. She didn't have any kind of social work background that I'm aware of or that she acted like. But, you know, there again, I and I went back to her three or four times asking, you know, calling, asking for information before she pretty much invited me to not call again. <laughs> and, and I wasn't rude. I was just being very assertive about, you know, this is information about me. Why aren't you going to give it, give it to me? And, you know, it's like I instinctively knew. I was like, I know there's more in there. So um, at that point in time, though, what it did lead me to is I contacted that other agency that handled my, um, you know, the, the home visits and everything just to see what they might have. And they didn't have a whole lot. They didn't have a lot of that information about me that I was looking for. But what they did send me was copies of my surrender documents. And that's, you know, that to me was like, well, that's awesome. I mean, and she was very helpful and kind and apologized that they didn't have any more information than, um, you know, than what they did have. But, you know, it was, it was really a, um, a gift to be able to get that because, you know, there, once again, I see exactly what my mother signed and it didn't say anything about me not having any right to know about her. Yeah, it's, I think it's hard for people to really understand the impact of seeing these documents and oh, it, yeah, even seeing your mother's yeah. signature. Well, that wasn't on there because it was redacted, but ah, okay. so, you know, even though, so, so that, that wasn't, yeah, of course, the big black <laughs> marker lines through all of it. So, you know, that was all, but, but still, and, and, and I think probably, you know, that whole what she had to experience. I think the two things that came out of seeing that for me is, you know, as I'd mentioned the whole, you know, this is, this, this is different than what we're told about adoption, what this, this document says and seeing that, cause I had two sets of surrender documents because, um, you know, first of all, I was in the custody of the uh, you know, I, the person who took responsibility for me was the director of the agency in Cleveland. And then there was another set of identicals saying that this person, um, this agency was giving custody of me to this other agency because it was in my best interest. And, um, and that made me feel like a piece of cattle or something, you know, where it's just, you know, a property transfer or something like that. And I think that's what really, what really highlighted for me, what a transactional thing adoption really is. Yeah. You're just kind of this package that's being passed from one. Yes. I I know uh, when I read the social workers notes about when I was handed over to my adoptive parents and about the steps that were taken to ensure that it was done in secret and and that my birth mother wouldn't be anywhere in the vicinity when it happened. And, it, you know, that's so different than the idea of like this 
young mother lovingly handing you know her child to these people that she's trusting to to raise her child for her it's very different when you're just reading you know official documents that say okay we check this box and yes yeah sign this piece of paper and now you belong to someone else or no one else or yeah yeah it's disconcerting it is it really is and it just you know it it shines a light on the the fiction that the stories we've been told really are I think yeah it's that whole if adoption is beautiful kind of question so you were surprised that there was just additional documents Hey, I, the fact that you were so determined that you kept going back and you weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think a lot of people are af- afraid to do that. Well, yeah. And then after she didn't really want to talk to me anymore, um, I basically bided my time. And when I determined that she had retired, I went back to the agency again. And this time the gatekeeper was a much kinder person and um, even though I had to send them $150 this time uh, to get the information that I requested for the $100 you know seven years ago (laughs) um, she did look in the file and confirmed to me that what I was looking for which was information about you know my birth my health at birth all those kinds of things uh she even confirmed that there were a couple of photos in there and um you know the, so she she did confirm to me that this other woman was lying to me and i don't understand why i still i never will and i guess it's you know pointless to keep you know hammering in on it but you know the information was there and so um at that point just this year it was just in this summer um, I got this, you know, birth history that had a lot of, you know, a whole lot of information in there about me and the family that I was in. It was, um, you really have to look at it in the context of the time it was written in because um, the social worker's focus wasn't so much on, you know, how I was doing or anything like that. But what if that maybe I was? <laughs> I don't know how many different time, ways they found to describe um fat baby in that you know in this these social workers comments so um but but it gave me tons of information and it's at this point it's like I know this is what I'm going to know about that period of time they um they don't release information you know their policy is not to release information about uh the foster family that you were with and or the boarding home is what they called it. Um, but at least I do know that that's where I was and I wasn't in some kind of a, um, you know, like an orphanage or something like that. I know that I was in a home and I, they, she sent me at my request, she sent me the original pictures because I said, you know, there's, you know, this is a 50 some year old file. Nobody is ever going to have any interest in those pictures except me and possibly my birth mother. So yeah. So why I, she did it. send me those? Yeah. Right. And she she actually sent them to me. So I I know that that's what I'm going to know, and you know that's the way it is. Well, congratulations. 
Yeah. Well, and you know what we haven't talked about yet, though, is where DNA comes into all of this for me. I know. And usually <laughs> we were, the technology interrupted us so many times that I kind of I know <laughs> lost track of the time and where we were in the interview. And so I apologize. It's uh, challenging. But I, so, yeah, normally this would be kind of over the, the normal time limit, but I, I would, oh, you- if you would kind of wrap up with whatever your thoughts are on yeah. how that came so, into play for you. So kind of the, the full circle thing for me is, is in 2018, you know, of course, I, um, respected my mother's wishes not to reach out to her, but I also knew I had the right to spit in as many tubes as I wanted to. And so I had, you know, I had put DNA, uh, I had tested DNA with at that point Ancestry 23andMe and FTDNA and uh, really hadn't had a lot of really close matches. There were some I recognized, but in 2018, my sister had gotten a DNA, my birth mother's youngest child um, had gotten a DNA kit for Christmas and sent it in. And she, I think, is as curious and, and determined as her oldest sister. And when she saw that close family match, she dug into it until she figured it out. And she had already figured out that we were sisters by the time she, um, she contacted me. So um, at that point in time, um, from 1982 to 2018, it took that I finally had that reunion with my mother um, in 2018 uh, and my three siblings that she raised too. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big, I mean, so your sister arranged that? Yes. So that was, and, and, and my mother's thrilled to have me in her life at this point so you know it's it's um you know kind of a full circle thing and i understand how fortunate i am that i know that many people don't have um this story i lived with that rejection for many 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 years and um i think it's been very fulfilling but also really helps me understand that that rejection wasn't about me you know it was about it was about her and where she was at in her life and that type of thing so that's a really important point I I I wish you know if that's one thing that we can take away from uh, from an experience like yours the knowledge that we may feel ready but we don't know whether the other person has processed any of their trauma or been ready. Um, right. And that, and, you know, and it's not about us and maybe they'll never be ready. Uh, and maybe we, we don't have any control. We don't have any control over what other people say and do and think we can only, we can only control ourselves. Yeah. And that's very true. And to be able to just accept that, it's not a judgment on our self-worth if the, you know, if our family does not accept us or isn't capable of seeing us, you know, they don't even know us really. Right. 
Right. So they're not rejecting us. It's all of this other stuff around uh, the situation. It is. And uh, but yeah, I mean, congratulations on your, like I said, you're the queen of persistence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't take no for an answer and you just kept going back and, uh, yep. but it sounds like you did it when you were ready. Yep. It, it wasn't like a, just a real linear thing. It took um, a lot of time and, and a lot of gaps in time and you know from start to finish yeah and I think that that's something you know if people listen and and think about their own process for applying for things and looking for things and and doing DNA and when you receive your documents it's okay if if you don't do it all at once it's okay if you need time to process things it's it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling about the things that you find. And it's just really important to find a support group and find people who can understand where you're coming from so that you don't feel so alone with, with the things that you're going through and the things that you're learning. That's a great point. And you cannot underestimate how much a little old piece of paper means when you're looking at it and sometimes processing what's on a piece of paper takes a while yeah it can take a long while 30 mm-hmm. 34 years for you yes. <laughs> 22 yep. years and i don't think it's and it and it hasn't ended you know i think it's a right yeah it's a journey yeah this is yep. our lives change and at each stage our adoption reality affects us in different ways right because who knew back in the 80s when I started searching that eventually you'd be able to get DNA testing with all kinds of ethnicity information and help you connect with family I mean that was not even something you could fathom oh yeah and way the back idea then. Is, yeah and the internet being able to just go into a group and talk <laughs> to people no exactly well and the finding I mean you know this finding was a years-long process for me when Ohio opened their records Adoption Network Cleveland whose director their their agency actually um, was very uh, key in getting that law changed but they had a Facebook page for people who were finding their records and I can remember you know people would get their birth certificate on a Friday and they'd plug the names in to Facebook and they had contact information by Saturday, you know, and, and that's just, you know, and that, you know, for as, as painful as this was with that process, I had the opportunity to absorb things over time. You know, that's, that's to me would be overwhelming in a different way to just, you know, get a name one day and you've got a picture and all this other stuff on Facebook the next day. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Also, there's no time to really think about the implications or, you know, sit back and make a decision about how you want to approach things because it's so easy to just, you know, it's natural that we want to know. And, yep. and I think we can fall down that that hole of just like, I don't know, Facebook stalking people and... <laughs> 
trying to exactly yeah sending ill-advised letters before we've had a chance to really think about what we want to say right so yeah and and the thing is there's no rule book and there's no way to know you could find out and reach out the same day and have a wonderful uh, outcome or you could reach out the same day and have people you know block you threaten you you just don't know right you you don't you can't as much as you try to get into um someone else's head you you just can't i know of um another adopted friend who uh, found out that um, their mother had done ancestry dna testing the month the you know the assumption i would make if my mother had done that would be oh my gosh she did that so she could we could find each other well you know this has been a few years and they still haven't met their mother because she doesn't want contact so you you just you don't know what you, you don't know what's waiting on the other side and we may be biologically related but we didn't grow up together we weren't you know as 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 we as adopted people grew up we weren't with them so we don't you know our upbringings may have been very different our thought process is different it's 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 a it's a a lot it really is a lot to to handle and to try to do it with grace and you know respect the feelings of everyone involved so in closing what would you something just went really loudly outside of my window i don't know what that was people oh, you're waiting for your internet to go again aren't you <laughs> i'm gonna fall over i don't know <laughs> so anyway uh so in closing, if you had a piece of advice or wisdom to pass on to somebody who's just starting that application process, what would you, what would you tell them? I really think it's a summary of what we've talked about. I would say, make sure you have a support system, make sure you have, have read and understood what all of this adoption stuff means. Make sure that you have respect for everybody involved. And most of all, understand that this is your right to know this information. Understand that this is not, um, it's not unusual. Uh, there's nothing wrong with you for what you want to know. As a matter of fact, it's, it's just basic human basic human condition to want to know everything that we can about ourselves well thank you those are you know wise words from becky drennan thank you so much for joining me today and thank you for your patience with all of my technical difficulties well thank you for having me here the more all we right. get our voices out the more it'll help people uh well and like i said you're the queen of persistence so thank you <laughs> Well, thank you. You have a good day. You too. All Goodbye, right. Andy. Bye.